Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com It's 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News, where we explain marijuana laws so you can change them. Today, we are joined by David Abernathy and Gene Sullivan from the Arcview Group. Hey, Gene. Hey, David. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Hey, Tom. How y'all doing? Good. Good. Thanks so much for joining us. The Arcview Group is uh, the original OG of cannabis investment, in my opinion. And if you guys are joining us and you're a social equity applicant, this show is for you. And if you're also an accredited investor or you're somebody who's trying to look for how to invest in cannabis, this show is for you. So please do smash and likes and click subscribe on our cannabis legalization news show. And if you would uh, follow me at cannabis industry lawyer on Instagram. And with that, I wanted to introduce Janine. Janine, can you explain the Arcview Group and, and introduce yourself, please? Hi, Tom. Thanks so much. I am Jean Sullivan. I live in New York City and proud of that. And the Arcview Group is actually an 11-year-old business. This is hard to believe. Time flies. Founded by two amazing pioneers, Steve D'Angelo, who I adore, and Troy Dayton, who saw before most that people would want to convene, get together, collaborate, share deal flow and ideas. And really, the business was founded on uh, for the reason that they despise the social justice problems, that people going to jail just for mere possession. And today, we've, we've, we've traditionally been and uh, a company putting on incredible events. These are big multi-day events all over the place. And in fact, in uh, in Europe, and we even did a big uh, event in uh, China in 2018. I was there. And now, of course, due to COVID, that changed the model. And we have, over the last year, established three amazing uh, financial services entities, a real FINRA uh, broker-dealer, uh, Arcview Consulting, uh, addressing the needs of many, which is pretty exciting. There's a wide range of, of consulting needs. And then I'm part of Arcview Ventures, standing up investment opportunities. Hey, that hedge fund for you, Tom, let's go. So we have a fund that's really interesting. We've made 14 investments. We have about 80 investors in that fund. And then we're happy to stand up special purpose vehicles and other ways for our large community of investors all over to invest. That's so awesome. And for those of us who we were talking about a, a cockamamie, what's well, not a cockamamie? It's a pretty interesting and like necessary. There's a problem in the industry that would require a fund like the one we'll discuss later. But first, David, could you please introduce yourself and, and describe where uh, you fit in at the Arcfee Group? Sure. Uh, so my name is David Abernathy. I'm a principal at Arcview Management Consulting. Um, I've been in the cannabis industry for about uh, 12 years now and with Arcview for a little over eight. Um, in addition to, to the work that I now do with uh, Arcview Management Consulting, I've also led uh, Arcview Market Research uh, for many years. Uh, and I sit on the board of the Arcview Group uh, Minority Cannabis Business Association, the Marijuana Policy Project, uh, as well as Oaksterdam University uh, and a couple of organizations outside of 
uh, outside of cannabis. Well, how do you um, have time? I mean, all those organizations that you just mentioned are, are very famous in the movement. And thank you so much for your service. And for 12 years, I mean, uh, the industry, how much has it changed in your tenure? Uh, it has changed an almost indescribable amount. Uh, when I got involved, uh, the first company that I founded did uh, financial services and consulting for what was then the medical cannabis industry in California. Um, it was extremely different. There was still a lot of social stigma. The All of the, the rules were still very gray. The federal government um, had waves of increased enforcement against uh, state licensed businesses. So 2012, uh, for example, was uh, a particularly rough year for um, cannabis businesses when the feds came in and started uh, raiding companies. Um, but it, I looks, it looks very different. Those raids, especially those ones in 12, I think those really were the basis for the Robacher Fire Amendment uh, that came in a couple of budget years later. And now I'm fairly certain, but I haven't nitpicked. I mean, like back in the day, I would watch it be like, oh, it's Section 452 of the budget. And now it's Section 3068 of the budget because the budget is passed every year. It's, it's what funds the government, everybody. Uh, and so now the Robacher Fire Amendment or whatever it's called, Blumenthal Lee yeah. and everybody has, yeah, has right. you know, kind of piled on. I think it just says marijuana, state marijuana laws. It, it's dropped off the medical. And so that Department of Justice ban against enforcement uh, for the, the next budget year is, you know, kind of a green light. I mean, it's one of those deals where imagine if the police said we will no longer be obeying or enforcing stop signs. Or like we have no money to enforce stop signs, I guess is technically what it is. But that's just something else. Well, I, I, Tom, like, but thank yeah. God a lot of these decrim laws have come into play. Come on. And Steve D'Angelo was here recently in New York City. He said it was his thrill to be able to light up on the streets of New York legally. And that is so cool. And then the other yeah. thing I... I'm sure you know he's doing. He's uh, founded this last prisoner project. Let's work to spring these people who have been in prison and jails for years and years. This is so embarrassing for us as a country and oh, uh, terrible, terrible infraction. It's it's not only do we lie to our people to their detriment, we lied to the people and then arrested them to their extreme detriment. And then they're like, hey, you know, there's a loophole in the 13th Amendment. Do tell. Well, if we arrest these people, we can make them slaves if they're criminals. Oh, well, uh, you know, I hear this jazz cigarette stuff is what they all like. So, I mean, it's, and of course, you, you know, same thing with the quote hippies during the 60s era. The hippies during the 60s, it was. And like, so, like 10 years ago, when I was a young lawyer, younger lawyer, I wrote that book about. Because one of the things that I thought was fascinating when I was in law school was going and reading about the nation's marijuana laws, because you're like, that has to be unconstitutional. But most people, they don't ask that question because as a lawyer or as a, a young law student, they're usually type A personalities, follow the rules, apple polish. I want an A. I want an A. They aren't going to ask, well, why are we doing these things? Because the answer to that is the teacher asked for it, you know. Yeah. Very inside the box thinking. I wasn't like that. And so like I looked into it. And then the more you look into the history of the cannabis laws in our country in the 30s and before and then in the 70s with uh, the anti hippies and then the communist or, or whatever propaganda they were using in the 70s, it just becomes just blatant unconstitutionality, just just taking people's rights. And it's like, well, but it's not based on any race. Yeah. If you don't look at the arrest data. Yeah. And yeah. it's it. It's really absurd. I mean, if you look at uh, cannabis as a Schedule One drug, um, cocaine and methamphetamine, by the way, both Schedule Two drugs. So, in the Controlled Substances Act, there are five drug schedules. Most drugs fit into one of those five drug schedules. Alcohol and tobacco being notable exceptions, they do not sit in the schedules How did at all. They get a pass, seriously. But uh, yeah, when you when you look at Schedule One, uh, a drug has to meet three criteria to qualify as a Schedule One drug. The first is that uh, it has to have no medical, uh, no accepted medical value. Um, the second is that it it can't be safe enough um, to be used even under clinical supervision. Uh, and the third is that it has a high potential for abuse. Now, folks can argue if they want to about whether it qualifies for that third high potential abuse category. But 
there is absolutely no rational argument to suggest that either it has no uh, medical utility or that it's not safe enough. Uh, the fact to be that used. it was in our pharmacopoeia for yeah. decades, and the only totally. reason the AMA didn't catch wind of it, and they did catch wind of it earlier with Doctor Woodward. You know, he was one of those slackers that was both a law degree and a medical license, and so he was the AMA's general counsel, and he had to go testify to Congress in the '30s, like, "Guys, you're calling it marijuana. None of the medical science has any clue what you're talking about. So you're doing this in a vacuum." And and they just pushed him out of the way. And the funniest thing was, you know, uh, Fred Vinson was on the he was a congressman from Kentucky at that time. And so he uh, was presiding over this board. And he's like, Dr. Wentworth, you know, he gets Dr. Woodward's name wrong. He goes, if you have nothing you know, worthwhile to contribute, thank you very much for your time. And then the Republicans were still kind of you know, caucusing with the uh, uh, doctors even back then. And so in the Senate, they sort of wherever they were going to pass it, they stood up and they go, hey, what does the AMA think about this? And so Fred Vinson gets up and lies and he goes, they sent their doctor Wentworth down here and they support this bill 100 percent. And then they passed it. And then yeah. Fred Vincent became the Supreme Court Chief Justice who died of a heart attack holding up the Brown v. Board of Education case. Yeah, there's there. There's a rescheduling process. You can petition to get drugs rescheduled, and there have been attempts to to get cannabis rescheduled over the years. I think it was in 1996 that the DEA uh, assigned um, their own administrative law judge, Francis Young, to look into cannabis. He spent two years looking into um uh, into cannabis and whether it should remain in Schedule One, uh, and keep in mind this is this is the DEA's own administrative law judge. He came back with a, a finding of fact that uh, included the quote: uh, "Cannabis is one of the uh, safest therapeutically active substances known to man, uh, and to keep it in Schedule One would be both arbitrary and capricious." They completely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, that and decided to keep it in schedule one anyway. So then, there's, a, there's, yeah. there's a long history of this. All right. And then like several years after that, anandamide was discovered and the endocannabinoid system was discovered in the early nineties by Dr. Michelum in a different country because it was illegal to do the research here, by the way. And then we're like, oh, so that's how it works and why yeah. it supports medical marijuana. It's just so poorly understood. It's it's just all lies. And then you have policy based on lies, but they have very real criminal penalties, very real felonies, very real lives, years of lives lost. People like, uh, so we don't make very much money on this YouTube channel because we, we talk about cannabis policy. And so that flags our ability to get ads. Uh, but we have some memberships, so if you want to join us, please do. Uh, 50% of the revenue that we do derive from uh, YouTube. We like to give to um, Freedom Grow Forever. It's it's Stephanie Landa's group. Uh, so we give them like 50% of what we got that, that month because they put money on people's commissary. So if they're sitting in there for weed, at least they're going to be able to buy something and avoid tamale day, you know? But hey, speaking about all these injustices, at least with a lot of these state legislative actions, we're doing something about it. So that's a great thing. Automatic expungement. I mean, many people have felonies. They can't even vote. This is craziness. So I couldn't be happier to see some enlightenment. Let's call it that. Yeah, Yeah, it's. It's been interesting to see, right, for a long time, all of the cannabis legalization, initially medical and then adult use, were voter initiatives. Um, And uh, that was great to see. And we saw a huge number of states legalize uh, through that that method. But voter initiatives are not possible in all states. Some states don't allow uh, voter ballot initiatives. And uh, in some states, it's just incredibly impractical. So the trend that we've been seeing lately of legislators uh, jumping on board and uh, and starting to pass legalization laws through state legislatures is really, I think, uh, a, a positive trend overall. Yeah. Let me press on that, because I think that's an important point that I had to learn when I learned this about this industry, that it's really those 
you know, amazing Western states, California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, uh, that had these ballot initiatives. So you can go and say, I want this. And in fact, you know better than anyone being a Californian that the earliest uh, propositions happened because of AIDS and people didn't want their friends to be, you know, longing to, for out of hunger. And it was really the chefs and the people in our business that wrote those ballot initiatives. But it's really the East Coast states, except for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that has only the ability through the legislature. So that's why we, as both kind of Midwest sweeping East, certainly these East Coast states, which we can hardly wait to talk about, are the ones that all had to do it through the legislature. And there's different political views varying views. There's a lot of conservatism. There's a lot of fighting. And that's what's so exciting about this East Coast wave that is finally happening. This that is, is awesome. really a great day. Yeah. And before we dive into the East Coast, because there's so much of it, I want to touch on social equity out of Illinois, because it was one of the first ones to kind of set it off when it comes to the legislative stance. But then also have to highlight now, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the ballot initiatives, and we just saw that even this year. But back, you know, the, the original story about that was like 96, I think, when Arizona's people overwhelmingly passed medical marijuana, just eviscerated by uh, the enabling statute for, you know, because uh, what will happen is they'll pass a prop and then they, they, they tell the legislature to write a law. And so that legislature used that ability to totally screw it up. And then they didn't get medical cannabis in Arizona until like 2010. And now we see it in uh, South Dakota and we see it in Mississippi, where the people say, yes, this is medicine. This is a lie. We That lie needs to end. We need access. We need safe access to pure quality cannabis. And then surprise, surprise, the powers that be are like, oh, no, 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 no. Just just no people. And and I don't understand why we uh, why do you think that's still happening, Gene? Because people are stupid when it comes right down to it, and they don't have the knowledge and education about the plant. It's right. still thought of many times as a gateway drug. It, you know, they believe in the war on drugs. The war on drugs has turned into a war on people, science, and research. And those of us who have educated ourselves understand that. But many politicians, legislators, and even citizens don't. However, it has pulled. Even the latest poll is way up in the 70s now that people want this and if there's a physician present it pulls in the 90s so people are, are starting to understand it are there issues absolutely because we haven't done the research to understand efficacy and what people need to treat certain health problems exactly yeah, so there was an interesting piece of research that finally came out of the united states that we just reported on in our last show and hopefully if you guys haven't seen it go check out that one where we report on a federal study over 10 years shows no increase in teen cannabis use when a state legalizes and i know that the, that government body that got that money to do that research had to be trying to find it because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten the funding that not only do we shut off funding we said okay you can do as much fun you get the funding but you must be looking for harm we told yeah. the scientists what to find talk about lying to your people when it's like look you can have you can make this data say whatever you want provided it says there's no such thing as global warming that's not science that's the totalitarian yeah they're, yeah. they're well one, there has been an incredible amount of research done on cannabis, a lot of it outside the United States, some of it inside the United States. One of the big, really challenging things has been U.S.-run, placebo-controlled, double-blind uh, clinical trials. Um, but when you look through the literature, when you look through the literature at the amount of research that's been done on cannabis and cannabinoids, it is unbelievably rich. And this argument that we don't have enough research about safety or efficacy is absolute nonsense. We have uh, an incredible amount of both uh, academic literature on the subject and also 
experience. This is a plant that has never killed anyone. The scientists joke that, that they were trying to figure out how much cannabis it takes to kill a rat. And finally, after years of research, they figured it out. It's about 20 pounds dropped from 20 feet. And they'll kill a rat every time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because Dr. Grinspoon did pass away, but he was like 92. Tommy Chong just turned 83. Um, Willie Nelson, I, I don't know, he's between 92 and 83. Uh, and so if there's ever been anecdotal long-term evidence, it's that you don't die until you're a yeah. very old person, which is not really the worst thing that can happen to you in life, you know? And and uh, I think to to get back to your question of why are these these legislators um, pushing back on this when there is such clear polling that people want this, right? They're passing voter initiatives. We know that an overwhelming majority of people support it's it's up around 90 percent of people support medical cannabis in the United States um, and and close to 70 percent for uh, adult use cannabis. This is one of the issues that cross, cross, cuts across party lines. We see bipartisan support uh, for cannabis legalization. The the place where the support tends to flag is in older generations. And that's where we see a lot of our legislators, right? A lot of legislators are much older than the average American. And you have to keep in mind that these are folks that spent decades being miseducated about drugs. Right. Uh, they spent decades with constant rhetoric, propaganda, telling them one thing and one thing alone, and that is that yeah. drugs are bad and that you have to keep them yeah, just out say of no. people's hands at all costs. And where was Joe and, Biden in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, he wasn't saying the right things either. He was in the and, Senate, uh, yeah. He's been indoctrinated. Hopefully, hopefully, I'm counting on Kamala Harris to hit him over the head with true understanding. And uh, there's some hope that that is happening. Yeah, he has said he I'm has gonna, said he would sign a bill if it got to him. Well, I still think we're going to be premature from that. But let's get into this. The other thing, then, the coalition building that has happened in the legislation, uh, because we had that problem with the uh, aged population, let's call it. Uh, and so they um, got the social equity coalition together. And that social equity coalition then really put it over the top in Illinois. But Illinois totally screwed it up so much so that it is about 20 past the hour. Uh, Lauren, I'm going to I'm going to need a quick 420 somewhere if I'm going to explain what happened in Illinois social equity experiment. Just a moment. Oh, so so what happened was uh, Illinois did that and they had a lot of social equity components built into their statute. These components have been copied in all other states uh, and they may have even originated from Massachusetts version. I'm not sure which one was the, the, the first horse out of the gate, but very often it's the arrest for the cannabis plant or if you are living in a what they call a disproportionately impacted area and then how long you've lived in that disproportionately impacted area. So Illinois devised a competitive licensing system. And in this competitive licensing system, the state, in its infinite wisdom, would pick the best applicant. And then that best applicant had to score all these points, 20% of which came from being a social equity applicant. About This is for the dispensary. About 2% of which came from being an Illinois resident. And about 2% of which came from being a veteran. And so as the mass of people applied, I want to say there was 75 dispensary licenses and 900 plus unique individual LLC teams vying for those 75. Out of that, there was just 21 perfect people. And so that means that the only people in the state of Illinois who have the ability to access this publicly bestowed right of commercial cannabis have to be a social equity Illinois resident veteran. And that may violate the well, equal protection of the 14th Amendment, but also uh, what we call in Illinois a special legislation. And this is very often in any state. They have this prohibition about special legislations. So you're not supposed to make laws that only appeal to a, a very insular, tiny amount of people when you can make a general law. So it sounds great. And like the tax dollars are going where they need to go, but they haven't handed out one license yet. 
So, Tom, I was going to say up till now, Illinois has tried to be the showcase for this. But, you know, we we don't do a lot of things right in New York, but the New York statute now is really trying to be that showcase. Because listen to this, in the goal is a baseline of at least 50 percent social equity applicants. And guess what? Women are included in that. So, so many women friends of mine and people that I know here are so anxious to apply when the timing comes, especially skewed to some micro licenses, delivery, and uh, some uh, uh, cultivation. So we're very excited about what's going on here for some uh, social equity part of the program. Uh, Hopefully we'll learn from the mistakes of other states, such as Illinois, which tried to. So we all want the same thing, which is fairness and opportunity. There's also some restrictions on sales, a three-year prohibition. So, you know, there hopefully are some guardrails. There's always going to be hijinks, but let's try and get these state statutes and regs right. Learn from each other. It's it's an incredibly complex problem to solve. It's an important problem that we solve. It's when you look at, uh, as you referenced earlier, the disparity in arrest numbers and the fact that in this country, there are still hundreds of thousands of people serving time for marijuana uh, offenses, um, largely black, black and brown folks. And at the same time, we're handing out licenses and and telling people it's legal. Some concession needs to be made to right the wrong of the decades long drug war. Now, exactly what that looks like is is a complicated problem. And so the first question is, how do you define social equity applicants? And in jurisdictions around the country, we've seen different definitions of what it means to be a social equity applicant. But the next uh, big question to tackle is what do social equity applicants get? And again, we've seen huge variations. So um, is it uh, priority uh, uh, applications? So they, they get the first crack at applications. Is it that they get extra points on their application? Is it that they have reduced application fees? Uh, is it that a certain number of licenses or a certain percentage of licenses are, are reserved for social equity applicants? And this um, getting this right, I think, is, uh, is um, a difficult challenge. And then the next part, and this is where very few folks have, very few jurisdictions have, have figured this out, is because these communities were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, as well as many other social pressures that disproportionately impact uh, these folks, they're less likely to have access to capital to start businesses. They're less likely to have... Uh, access to the type of education that you need to successfully start and operate uh, a business. And all of these need to be addressed. Um, So uh, ArcView is working on, um, ArcView Capital specifically, our our broker-dealer arm, is working on uh, ways to work with cities and states to create non-predatory funding mechanisms for uh, social equity licensees. I just uh, uh, got a thing off the ground that I've that's been kicking around in my head for a long time. I'm really excited to announce that that the Arcview Group and uh, Oaksterdam University have partnered uh, on a course. It's a uh, a two-day course that teaches people uh, the basics of raising capital in the cannabis industry. And it's designed so that people who don't have an investment background don't feel lost when they start to have uh, conversations about raising capital. And they know what what's going on, what's being discussed. So what is a series A round and what's the difference between venture capital and private equity? And what's a convertible note and what's a valuation cap? And what's, and a what's liquidation up with warrants? You know, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm glad that you guys are doing that. And it's a very necessary aspect when the people that will be awarded the licenses predominantly, and in Illinois, it seems exclusively, but we have to kind of talk on throughput on that. 
like how do you structure and it's again like the illinois applications were quite complex and i'm assuming that new york will still have regulations it's going to be a regulated industry in new york so its application should also be pretty complex and as a result how do you put it so it doesn't just end to a, a big pile of lawsuits that you know only benefits the people that already have a license that are publicly traded you know i think that there's an interesting answer that New York and Illinois is kind of getting to it, but it does have to do with a standard that the state would set. And so like you have to score over so much, you know, like 90%. And if you have the social equity, that really helps. And then if you've qualified for the lottery and you are social equity, we'll draw the 50 ping pong ball, 50% of the ping pong balls, and then add back in all the non-social equity applicants and then keep drawing. Because at the end of the day, the, the average person had the opportunity to access the benefit. So like that one argument for the violation of due pro, or equal protection or the special purposes license, uh, clause is kind of mooted by the, and that's, that's interesting. I, that was something that as being a practicing lawyer, I had not seen before. When you do sue the state or when there's an, an action for a review from the state, the state will start moving legislatively to moot your claims. It's really weird. Like, you know, other litigants aren't allowed to do this. Like if I, if I'm suing for a breach of, well, of course they're allowed to uh, cure, but uh, the cure isn't usually trying to moot the claims. And so it's been really fascinating to watch the litigation and then the amendments to the laws trying to stay ahead of that litigation. Yes, because look, in New York, as you know, it's been a many-year, eight-year battle just trying to enlighten again. And it took a long time for Cuomo to get it. And, uh, you know, this is well known that uh, he went along with it and got his own problems off the air. And now, you know, everybody's thrilled to have this great big legislation. And so it's expected over the next week that the five-person cannabis control group that will actually run those businesses will come together as and uh, write the regs and make things happen, you know, get the licenses. People are so excited. And one of the reasons, you probably know this, certainly uh, the listeners know this too, or may be interested in hear this, New York and New York City is considered the largest illicit illegal market in the world with three to four, possibly three to four billion dollars worth of business being done here. And so the thought already is, don't, you know, let's bring these people in the light. These are very well organized, very creative, very accomplished growers and other people. Let's bring them to the light and reap the benefit of the tax revenue and the opportunity and the wonderful, you know, land race strains and everything. So we're all excited here. You you bring up a really uh, a really good point. So California legalized medical cannabis in 1996. California legalized adult use uh, in in 2016, and I think the sales started in 2018. And yet California still has the largest uh, unregulated cannabis market in the world. Uh, and a lot of the reason for that is because of the the. Uh, 2018 regulations that took effect and how um, unbelievably bad they were for uh, cannabis business. And it made it really difficult for legal cannabis businesses to outcompete the illicit market. Uh, I I co-chair the dissertation committee of a uh, doctoral student at Northeastern who just uh, actually successfully defended her, her dissertation, but it's on the topic of California regulations and uh, how they affect the, the perception of uh, participation in the legal market. I think that New York has um, addressed some of the problems, some of the mistakes that California has made, but they have, have also uh, made uh, some of the, the same mistakes that California has uh, has made. And like California, New York has a really, really well-developed uh, illicit market. Um, yep. New York, I, I mean, going back decades, I would go to New York and have a business card with someone's pager number on it and page them and they'd show up uh, an hour later with cannabis. This was a delivery service uh, at a time when delivery services didn't exist almost anywhere in the world. So to right. displace that market, the regulations really need to make uh, 
legal cannabis a viable functional business and again like we've had guests on the show that are from the traditional market and and we want the traditional like one of the policy goals in my opinion when your state is legalizing cannabis should be the eradication of the illicit market get the market above board make sure the supply is pure make sure the taxes are paid here's the problem with that is and it gets worse the more limited the market and the more regulated the market they know the law they don't care and did it anyway how are they now supposed to comply with the law their past actions flagrant disregard for the law you now want them to track every seed track every gram pay all their taxes and not have anything slip out the back it's not that they're criminals it's just that they understand that sometimes you you can follow the rules or you just don't follow the rules and so like i don't know if nj Weedman's going to end up getting a license in in uh, new jersey because depending on what their policy objective is in new jersey they might be like well we just don't trust them uh now well, look, i think i think california i'm not sure california but, uh, michigan and oklahoma have done the best job of addressing the issue of eradication of the illicit market why is there a hundred plant license or a 500 plant license that anyone can get in michigan because the vast 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 majority of illicit grows are less than 100 plants or less than 500 plants yeah but here's the thing though go ahead david it's um when you look at like we, we hear in in California now these these calls for increased enforcement to try to uh, get rid of the illicit market, we know what increased enforcement looks like. We spent decades with increased enforcement. It doesn't get rid of the illicit market, but we do have a model of how you get rid of a, uh, an illicit market. Alcohol was prohibited in the United States for years, and all virtually all alcohol sales were uh, illicit, and then. Um, at the end of prohibition, states started uh, allowing legal sales again, and they created regulations that were designed around uh, around safety and not restriction um, in uh, in most places. And now, outside of a few counties in Appalachia, we don't have an illicit alcohol problem. Now, I can brew beer in my garage or make gin in my bathtub, and that's fine. And if I want to do that, no, the police don't need to be involved. I can even give it to my friends. And again, that's fine. But I can't make a business out of that. I'm not going to brew beer in my garage, illicit beer, and be able to outcompete the legal beer market. There is no, absolutely no space for me to do that. I can't run a viable illicit business. And in in alcohol, we see big, giant multinationals. Um, we see small local microbreweries. We see small vineyards. We see big, giant vineyards that produce millions of cases a year. And there's space for all of those legal participants to play in the market. But it just doesn't make sense. It's not economically viable to be an illicit alcohol producer or seller. And that's where we need to be with cannabis. And the way you do that is by making regulation, uh, regulatory and tax policies that allow legal businesses to outcompete illicit ones. Legal businesses have all sorts of advantages built in Uh, over illicit businesses. And we have like grabbed all of those advantages with regulation and tax policy and taken them away to the point that in a lot of places, you can make more money in the illicit market than the legal market. What do you think about license caps, Gene? Do you think license caps contribute to the illicit market, or do you think that that's the way to get... You know, uh, I I don't like the fact there's thousands of cultivators in Oregon. Do you know what? In New York State, we only have 10 licenses. And I learned the business because I was part of one of 10. And each license holder today can grow, extract, and you get four dispensaries. So four times 10. Imagine if there were only 40 drugstores in the entire state it's craziness so here's what and also get this for laughs no flour no edibles i like to say no nothing so imagine the dearth that exists here no wonder the illicit market is so robust so look we finally passed march 31st some legislation with a very very interesting big list of opportunities including you ready social consumption lounges 
in this original statute. We are thrilled. We can hardly wait for Planet 13 and a few other great places to come here. And then, as I shared already, a very, very serious opportunity for social equity applicants, not just people of color, not just disadvantaged, but for women to be in that class. We're thrilled about that. Now let's help each other get educated, get funded, and 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 make it happen. So your you know your good question's good, but I don't want to see thousands and thousands, but I sure want to see plenty. And I don't yeah. want it to be ten. There, there are, there's a balance to be had here, right? Like on one end of the spectrum, you have Oklahoma, which uh, has, I don't know, 7,000 plus cultivation licenses. I think basically anyone can get one and almost everyone has one. Uh, and uh, it's impossible to, to have any meaningful um, regulatory structure around that. And that's probably too many uh, licenses. You see all sorts of, you know, p- people with their dogs in their grow rooms who are shitting on the floor, and that's probably not appropriate for the production right. of medicine. Uh, but on the other side, you have these these states that have license caps that are uh, absurdly restrictive and don't allow for uh, a thriving market. So I think probably the the happy medium is um, is to have plenty of licenses um, uh, yeah. available. I think the, the happy medium and like as new states come online, if you're watching this, you know, let's talk about the new states before, you know, check out what Michigan's doing because it's regulated. And so like you are going to die from attrition if you did not raise the capital, if you did not have the team, if you were not an operator, you're gone. Because somebody else can get a license. And so I always, you know, it's more of a difficult sell to a client when they come and they want to get a license in Michigan because there's this, you know, um, everybody who goes into business is so smart. Right. And they're so confident. And so they don't need a business plan or help uh, and uh, uh, to understand their capital requirements or anything. They can just get the license and then it's all going to work for them. And if they go into that and like, you know, okay, we'll get you pre-qualified and get you started, they're not going to get very far. But then, you know, if they would have taken the time to figure out, well, what is this business worth when we are actually operating at capacity? What's our market capitalization there? Now, if that's where it is, where anybody can open up and then the regulations are so stiff that if you're not doing a great job, you're going to get you're going to be out of business. I think that's the best way to do it. However, social equity is really and social equity and still pretty limited market opportunity is what's on the agenda for the foreseeable future, maybe the next three to five years in most states. It looks like Illinois is going that way, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, um, even Virginia. And so I have this idea that, you know, the problem is you, you're going to build this, this thing and it's $5 million, let's say, and you're a social equity applicant. So you got 51% or in the case in Virginia, 66, which I think is, you know, cause now we don't have 49% to work work with as an investor, we have 34. So who is going to have that operating capital to put for the down payment on the the 7030 uh, LTV, if you can find it, uh, loan to value, uh, you know, uh, for for construction or facility and get um, some equity that way? Do you think that that's something? Well, how do we approach the question of the social equity applicant being awarded the license but not having the capital to get to the down payment stage. These are fair issues, but let me tell you something, and David and I will certainly attest to it. Uh, you know, people were afraid years ago, oh my golly, just investing, and then there were even terrible issues of people being prohibited from coming into the United States, some close friends of ours that are Canadians. So all those silly things happen. But there are so many people who are in that can of curious. Maybe they were successful in other areas, certainly might have come out of corporate America, been in a variety of different entrepreneurial jobs, had some exits. They want to play. Tom, there are so many people who want to invest. Now they got to know how to invest and who to trust. And then what's the deal flow? So that that's one thing that we've done at, at Artview to stand up that opportunity. And now there's more and more some magnificent investors building some great uh, uh, funds and opportunities. Uh, uh, and that's pretty exciting. So, so yeah, bring it on. And then let's take those social equity people, educate them if they need that and want that on both the financing part, like you heard from David and this Oaksterdam opportunity, 
uh, help them, advise them, mentor them. This is our time to be able to do that, to give back to people who want and need this. So we see companies every day. It's very exciting. And that's, and that's what I believe it's all about. And, and these laws, yeah, you, you, again, you need to, to states um, need to try to strike a healthy balance between um, creating bona fide social uh, equity uh, options and uh, and stifling the ability for those those social equity applicants and licensees to be successful. So um, I think it's uh, we, we've seen jurisdictions where social equity the social equity applicant has to keep eighty percent of the equity in the business, right? And th- this makes it really challenging. There are all sorts of creative ways that folks have come up with to um, try to get around these. Sometimes for uh, predatory reasons, and sometimes for very practical and helpful reasons. But things like managed services agreements that allow um, a, an MSO or an experienced operator to come in, uh, help finance the business, and uh, make some of their money back through uh, fees for uh, for operating the business rather than owning equity. Um, some social equity laws have um, have problematic restrictions on sales, right? You don't want to have a situation where social equity applicants are getting these licenses and immediately flipping them um, to uh, non-equity applicants uh, in a way that sort of invalidates the whole process. But also the point is to generate wealth and to create real viable businesses here. And if social equity applicants are not able to uh, build a business and then sell it, um, that's a, it's a, a really limiting factor. So fine tuning these, uh, these laws uh, in, in a way that we end up with what we're looking for um, is I think an ongoing process and, and, Fortunately, I think that we're seeing solutions start to happen. We're seeing uh, we're seeing laws in general get better and better. Uh, we're seeing people identifying more and more of the problems in existing uh, laws and trying to come up with solutions either on the government side, so on the, the legislative and regulatory side, or on the, the the private industry side to try to address some of these uh, some of these issues. Oaksterdam University actually has uh, contracts with uh, with several governments to provide business cannabis business education for. Uh, their so- social equity licensees. Um, and uh, so I think there are all sorts of opportunities for um, for public-private partnerships, for um, sort of private ingenuity, for uh, government regulatory uh, and policy changes that will uh, will help get us to a place where we have a, a functioning industry and hopefully one day where we don't we don't have to worry about uh, a lot of these really, really complicated um, problems that that we deal with today. But, you know, the, that's what keeps the cannabis industry so interesting is um, the complexity. David, Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, David, I'm going to keep my eyes up for that Oaksterdam collaboration you mentioned. Is that going to be virtual as well or just in person? Yeah, it's virtual, and uh, you can actually find out more about it. I think the the uh, URL is arcviewgroup.com slash Oaksterdam, um, or you can just visit uh, the Oaksterdam University uh, site or the Arcview site and, and find it um, find it that way. Cool. And before we go, is there uh, can we reach you by uh, IG DMs? Do you have a LinkedIn or an email you'd like to share? If we'd like to learn uh, more yeah, information. Yeah, feel, feel free to uh, find me on LinkedIn, um, David Abernathy, and, and I look forward to uh, connecting with folks. Right, same awesome. here. And Tom, come and invest with us. It'd be fun. Cool. Yeah, no, I got um, I got some deal flow, but then it's like it, it depends on what state we're in. Like there's going to be a wall of deal flow out of Illinois if and when it ever breaks. Uh, and then there's, yeah. And then there's different styles like, in different states. And so I'm very interested to see. And I, I'm just kind of biased toward like Arizona already handed out licenses because they did a lottery. It's, here's the standard. Are you in? 
we're handing this out. And then how do you make sure that you don't get sued? Well, you qualified, you had a random chance, your number didn't come up. How is the state culpable for doing something wrong there? You know? So one, one final note, uh, at ArcView Consulting, we provide uh, all sorts of management consulting services to cannabis businesses. And we're really excited that we recently partnered with uh, a company uh, called the Cannabis Capital Group, which does competitive license applications. And they um, have a really strong team that helps craft really uh, compelling winning um uh, applications in these uh, insanely competitive states. Uh, so if you're looking to to apply for a license in one of the states that's uh, that's coming online, you can um, call me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reach out and uh, we we'd love to we'd love to talk. Yeah. No, no, you guys, um, that would be a, an excellent uh, thing for him to do. And like right now, before the show, I was w- wrapping up the fourth round of notices of deficiencies from Illinois. Um, if you guys wrote some in there, you got them because like they just they just give them to everybody. And, and the same application will be scored differently. It's very peculiar. The competitive, complex applications are almost so competitive and so complex that the powers that be can say whoever won won. Yeah. And well, frankly, look, a lot of these laws and regulations and um, application processes are being built right there. They're they're building the plane while they're flying it. These uh, folks do not have uh, experience, by and large, uh, with programs like this and often are missing some some key understanding of the the market dynamics of the cannabis industry. And uh, so we see a lot of changes, right? We see lots of last minute changes. In, in the way applications work, deadlines being moved, um, problems with scoring, and that's before we get into the uh, the lawsuits that have popped up in, in so many of these states with competitive applications and allegations of uh, of nepotism and uh, and bribery and all, all sorts of uh, bribery is real, and so like that's going to be one of the courses. You've gotten a license. Here's how to wear a wire or always record every conversation you have with any public official surreptitiously but just to end on a really great note a high note how's that here comes the east coast so all the way down from maine to florida there's 120 million people connecticut looks like it's coming online we think that could happen by tomorrow it passed the senate needs to pass the house see i had to learn too these states are only in session many of them just a half a year. So Connecticut ends tomorrow, New York the end of this month, Texas meets every other year. Uh, and uh, But Pennsylvania does have a full year session. So we're hopeful Pennsylvania can come on. So see that helps govern a lot of these moves and changes too. But I think it's pretty exciting time for the East Coast. Yeah. And we can learn and have these beautiful products that you Californians and Coloradans and uh, one Wonderful states have produced already. So looking forward to that. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you guys so much again. And thanks for watching, everybody. Make sure you like and subscribe to people with all cannabis legalization news. We will see you on Wednesday. Thanks. Thank you.